Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again everybody and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host Clayton Fletcher. Happy as always to be bringing you another episode of what I hope is quickly becoming your favorite podcast. It's definitely my favorite podcast and has been for many many years long before I was your host. Uh, As the year draws to a close here I hope that all of you are seeing that your poker goals and your other goals too for that matter have been accomplished in 2018 and that you are looking forward to a really great and prosperous even lucky 2019 Uh, i want to bring on uh you could even call him my regular co-host at this point he's definitely the one who does this with me most often it's your friend and mine snoston lost himself jason smith how are you jason i am doing great thanks for having me again always love being here are you okay if I say you're my part-time co-host? Is that okay? I think that's fair. <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was just talking about how we're wrapping up 2018. How has the year been for you in general? Uh, it's been up and down, but overall it was a really good year for me. Yeah. Is the yep. online grind becoming harder? Like I keep hearing it's just p- players are getting better and better and, and making money online is harder. What are it's your cer- thoughts on that? It's certainly tougher than it was, but if you know you game select well and have good bankroll management, there's certainly money to be made. All right, so you're basically a bum hunter. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not going that far. You told us uh, last time we spoke, we actually talked about um, a hand that you had played. Uh, what do they call the OSS? Yeah, so anyone mm-hmm. who's playing the OSS is not bum hunting. We can say that for sure. Uh, it seems like the competition is pretty darn tough in those things over on ACR, where, by the way, Jason is a super gold barnstormer or something. What are you again? <laughs> I am the ACR Stormer's manager. That's it. I like so, my yep. I like my title better. But <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> I call you a barnstormer. That's fine. Um, we got an email about the last episode that we. Uh, did together from a guy named Joe, and I wanted to uh, share the email with you. We can get right into it if that's okay. So, Sounds good to me. Okay, good. So uh, he emailed me directly, uh, poker at ClaytonFletcher.com, if you're interested in doing the same. Hi, Clayton. First off, I've really enjoyed the TPE podcast the last few weeks. I'm a recreational player and co- try to keep up with the latest tactics and trends. Um, More really nice stuff about me. I'm going to skip that part. Anyway, just listen to the November 30th podcast with Jason Smith. And one thing stuck in my crawl. When discussing what to do for various turn cards, you guys left one out. Another ace. Would you check raise an ace on the turn since villain's range is wide? Would you donk into him? You guys talked about how you would handle... A river ace, but not the turn. So, Jason, if you don't mind, this was a hand that you had played mm-hmm. online that we discussed a few weeks back. 
would you mind um, just kind of getting people up to speed on – refresh our memories exactly how that hand went, if you could. Sure. We'll kind of go through a quick summary of yeah, quick. what was going on. So it was a, a, a six-max tournament. We had five people at the table, so we were dealt in five-handed. Uh, the villain was a very competent uh, regular, aggressive, very aggressive player. Um, we were starting a round 80 blinds deep or an M of, I forget what it is now. It's like, <laughs> I don't know, 37 M or something. That sounds right. Um, yeah, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And so uh, he min raises the button and we have jack eight of clubs in the big blind. We defend. There's 3,500 chips in the pot. Flop is ace of clubs, jack and seven of diamonds. Uh, we check. He bets 1,400, which is about... 40% of the pot. Actually, it's exactly 40% of the pot. So we go for a check call with second pair and some backdoor draws. The turn was a 10 of spades. So now we have a well, we have second pair with a gut shot. Um, we check the villain bets half pot exactly. And we decided to check raise. Now, what the question is, what turn cards would we check raise? We decided we were going to check raise some diamonds. We decided we would check raise a jack or an eight. Or maybe just call an eight and check raise a jack, I think is what we had decided. That sounds right. And we also uh, talked about, because this particular opponent is going to have such a wide range and such a wide barreling range, check raising some helpers like the ton of spades that came, or a nine, something that gave us a gut shot to go along with our second pair, to sort of uh, increase our check-raising range versus a player like this. Um, The question is, would we have check-raised an ace? Do we think that's a good good card to check-raise? And I don't know what your thoughts are on this. Do you want to kick it off, or do you want me to just kind of go into it? Yeah, I can jump in here. Yeah, Um, go ahead. I think it's, uh, first of all, thank you for the email. Obviously, uh, we appreciate interaction of all kinds. You guys can also tweet at Clayton Comic, which is usually a little bit faster. I can give you more of an immediate response. You know, poor Joe has had to wait several weeks now for us to answer his email. But uh, I think, yeah, having our, uh, we didn't we didn't talk about how we would handle another ace on the turn. I don't think I would lead an ace, and I don't think I would check raise an ace on the turn. And the reason why is because, well, the reason I wouldn't lead is because it's entirely possible that our opponent has the ace here, right? I mean, just because he's uh, a loose, aggressive reg doesn't mean that he never has top pair. And just because another ace comes doesn't mean he doesn't have top pair. Uh, And we don't block any aces because we don't have one. So he could very well have an ace that he's betting this way. And then obviously leading is not going to help us get him to fold trips. And then checking, I don't think he's likely to barrel uh, if the board pairs. The top card, I find that usually the top card pairing on the board uh, slows bluffers down because it's just less credible that they can have that card. Everybody knows about combinatorics at this point. So usually players don't continue barreling that might be a, a shutdown card for him if we have checked and called and now the, the the top card pairs again especially given that it's an ace and we have a lot of aces in our defending range what are your thoughts uh, i think that all of your thoughts are valid for sure i would just take it a step further and say um 
Well, it's not just that it's more likely that he has an ace, or it's unlikely that he would have an ace. I think the truth of it is, is that we don't have any ace-ace, we don't have any ace-king, we don't have any ace-queen. We would have three-bet all of those hands. He has all of those hands. So all of the aces that he has are stronger than the aces we have, right? We can still have some boats with ace-jack and ace-seven. That's certainly true on the turn. But we don't have any of the strongest aces where we could be... Um, you know, we don't. We just don't have as many ace x in our range as he does. So we're we're trying to bluff a card that our villain that, that the opponent is going to have more of, which is usually not going to be a great recipe for success, right? We want to have we want want to be able to rep the board better than what our opponent's range is. And since we have a weak, since he has a range advantage on that board, uh, especially when ace turns, I think that. Uh, it's a little optimistic going for a check raise when another ace comes. Absolutely. And I also want to add that uh, just in terms of trying to balance our ranges, we've already added so many bluff cards into our uh, check raise bluffing range. If we're going to say any uh, card that gives us a flush draw, any card that gives us uh was it trips or two pair? Uh, any card that gives us a gut shot. There's a lot. There are too many bluffs in our range to start trying to find more. <clears throat> I think the problem yep. I was having with this hand was uh, having enough value in our check raising range, not trying to find more bluffs. Yep, I agree. I agree. We were we were exploitatively check raising as it was by having a bluff heavy check raising range and only a couple value combos really that can come for us on the turn. So yeah, we, we were, we were really just our whole check raising range was almost, it was almost entirely bluffs already. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we were having, yeah, we were having, we just had a, already had a, a bit of a balance problem and now this would actually create an even bigger one. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for all of those reasons, I don't think uh, an ace is a card that would uh, make me get too frisky, and it doesn't sound like it would for you either, Jason. Yep. All right. So, yeah, thanks again, Joe, for writing in, and for all of you that have been interacting with us. I want to talk about another interaction uh, that we had after an episode that I did with... Uh, uh, Katie Stone, who uh, had recently played in a live event at Borgata, where because of the big blind ante, the stacks at the final table were very, very short, and they decided to chop for that reason. So for those who don't know, the big blind ante is uh, a relatively new way of uh, structuring tournaments that once the antes kick in, Rather than having each player put in uh, the small chip to ante up, uh, and then the dealer having to say, okay, don't forget to ante up everybody. Everybody's got to put in the ante. It's much faster, and, and the main reason we're doing it now is just because it speeds the game up a lot, is that the big blind put post the big blind and the ante for the whole table. So the structure might be something like 300 small blind, 600 big blind, and 600 ante paid by only the big blind. So that's fine for when you're at a full table, but Katie was saying that players were very frustrated that uh, that caused the stacks to feel very short 
compared to the blinds and antes and the fact that they were having to pay the ante so frequently once they would get down to like five or six players it would just feel like we're getting eaten alive by these blinds and antes so uh before i talk about the uh interactions we had about this on twitter i want to get your thoughts in general on big blind antes and making adjustments when tables get short either because of a final table or because maybe it's a six max tournament and just what are your thoughts in general on adjusting to the big blind ante? Sure, happy to give uh, all my thoughts on it. I will say though, I have never actually played in a big blind ante oh. tournament, so they don't do those on the on the internet yet? Do they? <laughs> no, they do not. <laughs> because so, it's not a problem, right? The the dealer doesn't have to remind players online to ante up, so yep, it, yep. it doesn't They're slow just, the game down. Yeah. Exactly, they're Makes automatically sense. posted. So I will say, I like theoretically, I like the idea of a big blind ante in live poker because it does speed. I I can see how it would speed the game up, certainly. I would ask a question or two, though, about this particular final table now. Is it, was it an issue of the structure of the tournament was just built too fast and so it was going to be crapshooty because of that? Or, or is this a normal issue that we're finding at big blind anti-final tables where the final table is uh, much more likely to really press the action? The answers to both of your questions is yes. So was this a problem with this tournament because of the structure of this tournament. This was, I think she said, a 300 and some dollar buy-in. Mm-hmm. So, um, a little bit faster pace yeah, structure, it's, probably. it's going to be a little bit more turbo to begin with, but then it felt, for the players that remained at the very end, even more so because of that. But it's also something that's been coming up a lot. It's even leading some players to have opinions such as maybe when we get down to the final two or three tables we should reduce uh, the size of the ante. So maybe keep it at 300, 600, but now we'll just pay a 300 ante instead to kind of make it feel a little bit more play. Um, So yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Or what if they just like kind of merge the two um, sort of structures where you have like, like there's like a normal ante and then the big blind ante and the way you merge them is... You say, okay, this is what the ante is, and it'll be a normal size ante, whatever the normal is for the old structure. And then the big blind is just responsible for paying all the antes for the players at the table. So if the big blind is 1,000 and the ante is 100 and you're dealt six-handed, then the big blind would post his big blind of 1,000 and then 600 for the antes for the table. Okay. Yeah, that might get into – That's a, I think it's a strong suggestion and probably something that – someone has probably considered mm-hmm. and I think where you might get into trouble is that uh, when they race off chips then you might not have the right denominations left to be able to do that well so then they would just have to race off chips in terms of what the structure is just like they did just like they used to do but now instead of everybody anteing one of those chips you just have one person right. so it still can speed the game up but the dealer just has to be more on point with okay, there's seven people at the table, so this is what you owe me, big blind. And they just have to remind the big blind every hand, just one player, this is what the ante is. This is right. what the ante is. You know? Right. So Katie's point, yeah, I agree with you. Katie's point is uh, when you get to a final table in any Borgata, Fall, Poker, Open event, or any other major casino tournament series, even if it is in one of the smaller buy-ins, the players shouldn't feel like, oh, we shouldn't play because they just they didn't want to have a big crapshoot with 40,000 up top 
Mm-hmm. So they just did basically whatever. However many players were left, they just chopped it. I think six ways they chopped it um, because they felt that the structure was now such that it was it had become too much of a turbo. But my point and where I started getting a little bit, uh, I guess, controversial, if you can use that word for this type of discussion, was that it's the players' fault that the blinds and antis have gotten so big because they didn't take enough chances earlier in the tournament. So if you know that when you get to the final table, your M is going to be six, if you don't start getting to that final table within the next hour or two, and you still choose to fold in spots where, you know, marginally you could have decided to raise or fold, and you take the more conservative route, then I think you pay for that at the end of the tournament by not having more play at the final table. I mean, the rules of the game are laid out on a sheet of paper before they even before they even start playing. So we all know what's going to happen. And we need to start adjusting as players to maybe treat a tournament like this as even more of a turbo. I mean, generally speaking, you want to take more risks in a turbo, right? Um, well, I don't know if you want to necessarily take more risks in a turbo. You definitely want to, you know, just keep considering your M or big blinds in every situation you're in. You don't, I don't know. I think that there's there's probably different schools of thought on, on this subject, but I think for me, I try to, my strategy in turbos is always, you know, just play in the moment that you're in and don't play for the future. You know what I mean? Like, don't think about what the blinds are going to be in X amount of minutes. Think about what the blinds are now and how that affects your decision because you're still only, you know, you're playing for a pot the size of what the pot is right now. You're not playing for a pot in the future, right? Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. But let me just push back on that just a little bit and see Mm -hmm. exactly. Let me take your pulse on that a bit. Uh, If I'm playing in the main event and my M is 12 and it's going to be 12 for the next two hours Mm -hmm. and I'm close to 100% sure that I've just been presented with a coin flip for all my chips, I'm probably going to feel, unless I really think that I'm at this killer table of sharks, that I, I can find a better spot than getting into a coin flip where I haven't really entered the pot yet. So... You know, trying to simplify, not have too many variables to consider. But if you just take that same exact scenario, M of 12, but now I'm in a, you know, a daily tournament that normally takes five hours and the blinds go up every 15 minutes, doesn't it make more sense? Can't we agree that it at least makes more sense to take that coin flip in the faster structure than it would sure. in the main event? So even, sure. if you, even if you still might not take that flip, it makes more sense to do so in the turbo. So I guess that's my point is that I remember well, many years ago we used to play a lot faster in tournaments. And then training sites such as TournamentPokerEdge.com started telling players, you know, try to reduce your variance. Try to just build your stack slowly. Don't get involved in huge confrontations where you don't have a big edge. And that's been ICM considerations have made the game less, more risk averse, I guess. Sure. And that's, you know, one of the points I was just going to make based like, you know, in response to what you just said is that, you know, in a tournament like the main event, you're deep in the main event, you have an M of 12, the ICM implications are almost always so much bigger than they're ever 
we're going to be in a turbo daily um, type tournament in the middle of a series or beginning of a series, right? Yeah, but I mean, you could so realistically taking those coin flips isn't going to be. Ne- oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to add that you could have an M of twelve in the main event in level three if things don't go well early. So sure. I wasn't necessarily saying we're close to the money or in the money. Oh, true. Fair enough. Fair enough. I just mean in general, if the blinds are going to get you sooner, you need to do something and maybe push the action a little bit more. Like, for example, if the blinds never went up at all in, in, in a tournament, you could pretty much just sit back and wait for the nuts. Yep. Absolutely. Right? So the blinds and antis are designed to force us to play. Mm-hmm. And players have been saying for many, many years now, at least 10 years that I can remember, oh, this tournament has a good structure or that tournament has a good structure. What that means always is that the blinds go up very slowly, you get a lot of starting chips, and then you don't have to take the variance. Yep, absolutely. Right? 100% agree with that. Because variance is more the friend of the recreational player. And, you know, in the long run... If the best players can eliminate variance from the from the game, then they would literally always win. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I understand the desire to avoid variance, but I think that when you play in a three hundred dollar tournament, uh, you should expect to have to take some variance. It's just part of the game. You want to play in a fifty thousand dollar seven day tournament or something, then go for it. You want to play the super high roller bowl, there's very little variance in that event, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I, I see your point as well. And I, I think that I could probably uh, start factoring that more into my thinking. Like your situation is your situation right now. And you're only playing for the stack or the pot that's in there right now. So whether the blinds are about to double or not doesn't really matter because – at the end of this hand, you're going to win only the chips that you can win right now or lose those chips, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. true. And, and and the other thing you think about, like, if the blinds are going to double, then how valuable are the chips that you're trying to win for your stack, really? Because they're the whatever pot you're playing for is about to be shrunk in half, right? right? Yeah. And so the independent chip model, ICM, mm-hmm. right there, is what are these chips actually worth? Yeah. All right, so it got a little, I don't want to say heated, but people had, obviously, this this got people talking. Mm-hmm. And even the great Matt Savage, tournament director extraordinaire, I was honored to find out that he had actually listened to the episode that Katie and I uh, did together. And he was kind of on Team Clayton as far as, yeah, I'm, I would never change the structure of a tournament so that players can have more play at the final table. Players need to adjust their play based on the structure of the tournament, not the other way around. But for many, many years now, and this is not quoting Matt anymore, not that I ever was, but this is my thoughts, not his. For many years now, players have had it the other way because the casinos are fighting for our tournament buy-in dollars and entry fees associated with them. So they've been trying to please us, and that's why you see – Tournament series go, the deep stack, the mega stack, the almighty stack, the ginormous stack, because yeah. players want to feel like they don't have to deal with any variance. Or as little as possible. I mean, obviously, we know we have to deal with some. But uh, it's interesting. This big blind ante could have the unintended consequence of maybe speeding up poker tournaments in general 
a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and that's why, you know, as time goes on, it'll get refined, and you know, it'll, there'll, there'll be some sort of, uh, I'm sure, can compromise uh, from all parties involved with it, you know? Like, the, ter- the the players can maybe push back on it a little bit and, you know, keep the, ter- it'll keep the tournament moving faster, but then maybe they get their, you know, reduced ante as players leave the table or something like that. You know, kind of kind of best of both worlds. You know, it's it's brand new, so there's going to be, you know, kinks that got to get ironed out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is a brand new thing. Um, I if I had to bet on this, which I wouldn't, but if I had to bet on this, I would say that uh, the biggest tournaments that are doing it are not going to change it anytime soon because. They want to give it a chance and see if we're going to get used to it or not. Something they just introduced, they're probably going to want to let it breathe for a few years. Yeah, sure, sure. And see if we all settle into, yeah, okay, well, because the final table is going to be more of a crapshoot if we don't get a move on, we need to get a move on now. I mean, all tournaments used to be turbo by today's standards. Even the main event, you know, 15 years ago was definitely a turbo. It didn't last eight days, I'll tell you. <laughs> it also didn't have 8,000 players, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only been a few years since they changed it from uh, used to get 10,000 chips for your $10,000 buy-in. And then a few years ago they made it 30,000 chips, and now it's 50,000 chips for the same $10,000 buy-in. So, And they've changed the structures so that everything's slower, and it used to be one-hour levels, now it's two so things have gone our way for a long time. By our, I mean professional players who want to reduce their variance. So I think the pendulum may be starting to swing in the other direction and brought upon by this uh, big blind ante and the uh, the adjustments that players are, be- I guess right now it seems a little resistant to make. So any other thoughts on... Big blind antes and whether you would ever want to play one <laughs> since you never. Well, had no, I'm I'm certainly intrigued by it, and I definitely think I would I would enjoy playing in big blind ante tournaments for sure. I I haven't yet, so, um, but it sounds like a great idea to me. I like the idea of the dealer not having to remind four of the eight players at the table that <laughs> yeah. it's their turn to ante every hand. You know, so tilting the guy that won't mm-hmm. get off the phone and he never remembers to ante and he just has to tell him every time. And you just want to kill that guy, but you can't because then you won't be allowed to play anymore. You have to go to jail. So <laughs> I was talking earlier about uh, goals. Do you set goals at the beginning of the year? Or do you look, do you look at your poker goals at the end of the year and say, "How did I do? Are you that kind of guy?" Or how do I'm you really that? I'm really not. You know, I'm I'm more. Um, you know, with poker, it's just like, you know, I guess my goals are just to keep up with like the constant working and studying and playing and, and, and all of that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I never, I certainly never make any results goals. Like I don't do the, I hope I make this, my goal is to make X amount of money this year. Yeah. Or win three splits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, it's tough too in tournaments to sort of know how things are going to go for a given year because there's so much variance involved. It's like, um, it's really difficult to know, like you know, like making some arbitrary money goal when you when what you do is play poker tournaments. It's very difficult to sort of have any real control if you're going to accomplish that or not, right? Yeah, Other than could, just putting in volume, you know. Yeah, and you could even accomplish that goal 
by playing very poorly and, uh, you know, just getting lucky. I mean, we've sure. certainly seen in recent years a lot of main event final tables that didn't feature players who put in the work, but they sure accomplished the goal if the goal was to make a lot of money. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and that's when I say thank God for variance because that's why the game isn't dying. Exactly. Um, Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you measure uh, whether you've had a good year? Uh, I mean, obviously you have to look at the bottom line, right? I mean, yeah, did I profit? You know, how much did I profit, right? But other than that, for a guy that doesn't set goals, how do you know if you're if you're keeping up with everything, like you said? Well, I mean, you know, you, you know if you're working hard or if you're slacking off. Yeah. Yeah. If course. you're if you're if you're if you're studying and you're 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 motivated and you're putting in, you know, uh, if you're putting in forty hours a week playing and then you're putting in another twenty studying, so you're putting in sixty hour weeks. You know, or some some variation of that, where you're you know you're you're studying at, at least half as much as you're playing. Yeah. Um. You, you know that kind of thing. If you know that if you're just waking up and dragging your butt to the computer and firing up tournaments and then playing till you go to bed and doing that over and over again, you know things things probably aren't going so well for you. At least in the long term, things aren't going to be going so well for you. You know, it's uh, it definitely takes dedication to work. So it's just like it's just like. Uh, how do I say it? I don't know. I think it's, but I think it's, you know, it's clear to me when, you know, I do go through periods where it's like I'm saying to myself, like, wow, I haven't studied anything in a week or two weeks or a month even sometimes. It's like I got to get my priorities straight here. You know, I got to do the work off the felt if I'm going to continue to to make money doing this, you know? That makes sense. Yeah, you know, you don't need some... Quantifiable thing to tell you how many hours have I studied or you know whatever how many tournaments have I fired you know whether you're doing what you need to be doing or not yeah and and honestly I think those kind of goals are the best kind of goals if you if you say at the beginning of the year like okay if you say I my goal is to make a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars or whatever the number is it's like okay well good luck hopefully that happens for you but if your goal is okay I'm gonna play poker you know, 30 hours every week and I'm going to study for 15. So I'm going to put in 45 hours worth of poker. And that's my goal every single week. This is going to be my schedule. And then you just, if you stick to that schedule, you're attaining your goal and you're probably going to have a pretty good year. And are you more likely to have a pretty good year? Let's say it like that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know. my, my goals this year were, uh, I wanted to play at least 40 tournaments. I wanted to, Spend at least a hundred hours studying. I figure that's about two hours a week. Um, I'm happy to say I accomplished all of my goals, but none of them were results. You know, my goals were all like what I wanted to be able to do on my end. Um, had I set a financial result for this year, uh, it's a hundred percent certain that I would have blown it out of the water <laughs> with the year I've had. <laughs> Just with my main event run, I would have, you know, crushed. I never would have dreamed that I would make as much money this year as I end up making. But I, I kind of credit that more to, I mean, obviously I had good fortune and good luck, but I also was prepared for the opportunities that arose for me. But most importantly, I was never focused on the results at all. I was just trying to make sure that I 
put my work in. And they are with tournaments. That's all you can do because the the variance is, especially in live, you you never can say, you know, I want to make a hundred thousand dollars this year playing live tournaments. You know, you could definitely say that with cash games if you have, you know, what you know your hourly is in a cash game is a lot more consistent than it'll ever be in tournaments. Yeah. Live tournaments, you're never going to catch up with the long run. You're going to die before you get there. Yep. Yep. So I agree with that. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, hopefully that little uh, segment there will give people something to think about as they try to plan their new year. Uh, it sounds like Jason doesn't sit down and say, oh, I'm going to study five hours a week. I'm going to play this many hours. Jason just kind of goes by feel, and he knows if he's doing what he needs to be doing. Uh, I'm a little bit more like I like to have some kind of concrete. I play this many tournaments. I have this many hours of study logged. Uh, and this many hours of cash games, and then uh, I could look back at the end of the year and see if I did my part, which has helped me in the past when I didn't have the results that I wanted, but I still had done the work that I wanted to do, and then I found that the results would sometimes come later. That way you don't feel like a failure just because you didn't you know, make your first million <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> it's hard yeah. to make money playing this game. It really is. It is. That is for sure. Yeah. So uh, if you have time, Jason, I had a, another hand. Uh, unless sure. you had a hand you wanted to discuss. No, 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 no. Let's hear it. Okay. We did great. mine last time, so. Yeah. All right. You're cool. up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I wanted to talk about this one with you before. So uh, this is from uh, back in November. I was in Las Vegas and I played in something called the World Series of Poker Circuit Championship at Planet Hollywood. So it's a $1,700 buy-in. Um, it's a three-day event, and we are just about halfway through day one. Uh, it's a big blind anti-tournament, and the blinds are now 250 500 with a 500 big blind ante. Uh, I'm at a nine-handed full table, and my 38000 stack is... A little bit below average at this point. I believe you start this tournament with twenty-five thousand, so it's probably right, right around average. Let's say it's about an average stack. So I'm not doing badly. I'm not doing great. I'm just kind of hanging in there, keeping up with the average. Um, my table is okay. It's not the best table in Vegas. Uh, it's not the best table in this room, but it's also not the worst. It's probably about an average table. We're in the small blind. Holding two black aces, and the cutoff opens to 1300, which might sound big, but it's kind of been the standard bet at this table. Blinds again 250, 500 with a 500 ante, and the cutoff opens to 1300, and he's got us covered with about 50,000 behind. Uh, let's see, the button, who is uh, a competent. Argentinian, I'm guessing, South American for sure, player, uh, solid, thinking, but kind of unremarkable, uh, just kind of like what I would consider like a standard type reg, you know, like he's probably on the circuit playing in all of these World Series of Poker Circuit events all the time. Uh, he's on the button, he raises to 3,500, and he starts this hand with only... 
18,000. Mm-hmm. So now it's on me holding pocket aces in the small blind. So again, it's a cutoff open to 1,300, and he has us covered, and the button three bet to 3,500. Okay. So there's, you know, 35, 48, 58, 6,050 in the middle. And it's your turn. And we're in an interesting situation because it's like we want to get all the value for our hand, but we're sitting in the small blind and, you know, calling can turn into such a disaster if we go three ways to the flop and really terrible position and really terrible relative position because then the aggressor is going to bet and you're going to have another guy behind you post-flop and it just becomes a nightmare. So I think our only option here is raise. And it just kind of stinks because we're going to blow that first guy out, out unless he just happens to wake up with, like, kings or something like that. But it's just sort of one of those spots where we have to try to isolate this and just play for that 18,000. So, I mean, you can make it basically whatever size you want here. You could make it 7,500 or you could make it 9K or whatever um, because you're basically going to be committed to the three better stack anyway. And the... Original Razor is not going to have any room to get tricky, so he's either going to be getting cooler or folding. Um, but that's just sort of the situation that I think we're in. I think calling really puts us in some really tough situations later on. Okay. Um, I agree with you, and I knew that I was putting myself in a tough position when I called, but here's, the, I think, the case for calling. Um we're going to have a very low SPR versus the three better, even if we just call. Uh, it's not going to be an issue. Um, if we flat, and even if the original razor folds, um, there's going to be like 10,000 in the middle. He's only got, you know, 1.8. The pot. Like it's, it's not going to be hard to get all in against him no matter what mm-hmm. um, if we just call. The real issue becomes what we want to do against the original Razor, which I agree with you, we're going to lose him when we three bet. I mean, when we four bet, unless he has kings, right? But also, if we just call and he has kings, it's going in anyway. Mm -hmm. So, I think the case for calling here is to try to play a big pot with the original Razor, not even really thinking too much about the three better, who's basically going to be committed the next time another chip goes in, regardless. I mean, we could just try to get it all in with, with him for the 18,000, which is obviously a lot because it's half of our stack and it's, you know, it's, it's a substantial amount of chips. It's not like 18,000 is nothing. But for me, I, I didn't worry too much about my positional disadvantage because of the SPR being so low. And I'm willing to play uh, out of position against the other guy that has a stack from out of position just because my hand is so strong. Namely, <laughs> pocket ace is the best hand you can start with. So, I mean, what do you think? Have I talked you into it at all? Uh, no. No. Right. <laughs> no, and here's why. Here's why. Because this is this is this is like such a likely scenario to happen here, right? So. He makes it 3,500, you call, big blind folds, original razor calls. 
right? This is super, super likely. So what's that make? 10, 5, 11, 5 in the middle. So the flop comes, you know, whatever the flop comes. But say it's something weird, like just some middling board. Jack, 10, 7. Jack, 9, 8. Uh, queen, 10, 7. Something like this, right? Just some three kind of like upper middle cards, whatever, right? Yeah. You, you check... Original razor checks, three better, uh, goes all in, right? He's got just over a pot size bet, or he bets like four thousand with the intention of getting in. Even worse, he bets four thousand for us, right? So I guess maybe not even worse, not even worse, but he bets four thousand. Now there's fifteen thousand in the middle, and you raise. If you raise, what do you raise to? If you raise and the other guy shoves, are you ever good? Like, your, your relative position to the aggressor preflop is really going to put you in some tough spots on some boards where maybe you want to protect your hand. But at the same time, while protecting your hand, you're opening yourself up to find out that you're beat when it's too, and by that time it's too late. You know, you've already done so much damage to your stack. It just puts you in so many spots on these these types of boards where, where it's connected in any way that I... Um, yeah, you know it's great if the flop comes like a six deuce or king course, five five. Yeah. You know yeah, that's it's great. It's a real easy board to play, right? But yeah, sure. What you fear is, and, yeah, and has to be. But now if it comes jack nine eight with two diamonds and I have the black aces, I don't expect to lose my stack. You know, to the to the guy that has fifty k. Um, sure. So like, so say say something like this happens though. Like it comes jack nine eight. Let's play out the scenario. Yeah. Check, check, guy who three bet decides to bet, you know, 7,000. Right, I uh, can't fold yet. I'll probably just call. Right, so you just call 7,000, and then the guy behind you makes it 20K. Right, we're out of here. So we just lost an extra 7,000. Okay, yeah. But then, the, then, then there's the issue of this, right? So we're out of there. We're just going to fold. We're going to cut our losses, but... What if he makes it 20,000 with, you know, ace 10 of diamonds on a one diamond flop with an open ender? Then we got outplayed, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the whole thing, though, is like on a board like that where there's so many draws, it becomes difficult to get away from our hand, but also, like, it's just such a high variance sort of situation. But anyway, those are my reasons for I would just three bet because I. I, but the part of the reason I would I would three bet there too is because I wouldn't flat any hands there. To be honest with you, I would either right. be three betting or four betting, excuse me, or folding pre. That is interesting. Uh, that's a very good point. And as I mentioned, the uh, guy that I have pegged is an Argentinian, uh, whatever part of South America he's from. Uh, he did say after the hand concluded. He's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I was wondering what you flatted me with. So, like you said, you wouldn't flat with anything. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I flatted, I guess it takes for a good player, it, it raises a red flag. So he kind of, he was especially wondering what I chose to just call 3,500 from out of the small blind with in this spot. So... He was rightfully suspicious of my call. So we think we're being cute. I mean, I didn't really do it to be cute. I just did it to keep the bigger stack in. Sure, no, no. And that I, I do understand the temptation because it always is sort of a 
uh, a frustrating predicament when you're like, well, if I four bet here, I'm going to lose a chance to double up because this guy can never, like almost never continue, you know? And like the original, like the guy who originally raised that we could actually double off of. And so you're sort of like, well, I'm limiting my value of my hand because I can only chip up by, you know, 50% or whatever the, the, the number is. Um, so that's, that's always like a unfortunate sort of situation. Um, so I definitely get, get the temptation to flat there for sure. Yeah. All right. Cool. So. I couldn't resist the temptation, and, and I did flat, but now here's the crazy thing. The mm. original Razor folds, even though he's getting this ridiculous price to call. I mean, I don't know. I guess maybe my call like really set off alarms in his head, too. Or maybe he just opened with nothing and didn't feel like playing anymore. But, you know, it only cost him another 2200 and there's already like 10000 in the pot. Right? Is my math off? Uh, there was, I think, uh, 35, 75, 85, plus 13. Yeah, 9,800 in the pot. Yeah. Okay. So with 9,800 in there, he doesn't want to call 2,200 more. So that right there, I don't, I don't get. But he did fold. So now we are heads up with this guy that has a short stack, and his SPR is less than two. So... I guess that worked out just flatting anyway. Um, so now we're heads up, and I did something I almost never do. Like literally have done it like three times in my whole career. I checked before the flop came out. <laughs> I checked dark. Okay. But my opponents don't know that I never do that. But my thinking here, and I wanted to get your thoughts on checking dark. Do you Would you ever do it in a live tournament? Is it even possible to do it in an online tournament? Uh, I don't know if I ever have checked dark. I almost never would, but I would say this. This is a great spot for you to do it because I think that sort of the universal read on checking dark is that the person who checks dark is hoping to buy a turn card. Right. They're hoping, they're hoping to scare their opponent into checking. Yeah. And so you doing that, maybe you know, add some weakness to your range that wasn't there before. Yeah, yeah. And also, my opponent just has such a short stack that I, yeah, I feel like... You yeah, know, you don't I'm, need three streets of value here. Yeah, I'm never going to bet, and so I might as well go ahead and try to get that weakness equity mm -hmm. of checking before the flop even hits. So, yeah, I thought it was an interesting um, kind of just instinctive thing that I did and then thought about it later, like, I can't remember the last time I checked dark in my life. <laughs> Why take a, a tool out of your toolbox, you know? But uh, in this case, I feel like I was putting one in. So, uh, yeah, the flop comes king, queen, six with two clubs. Sorry, two diamonds and one club. So, uh, yeah, we have the two black aces, remember? Mm -hmm. And with 9,800 in the pot, after I checked dark, my opponent bet 2,300. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that – what would your thoughts be if you saw that sizing? I mean, I think it's a, a totally fine sizing considering there's 9,800 in the middle and he has, what, like 15K behind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he just wants to line it up for a pot size shove on the turn. So it makes his sizing make sense. It's either I think his sizings have to be either that or a shove. Like he either has to go for like just over the size of the pot shove, or like one and a half x pot shove, I should say, or just bet twenty five hundred or whatever. What did you say his bet was? Yeah, twenty three hundred. Twenty three hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something really small, quarter pot, and uh, and then set it up for the turn shove or. You know, get away cheap on a bluff if he happened to to have a whiff there. Like maybe even he's betting a hand like say two tens, hoping that you have a hand like two jacks that you'll fold, or you'll have two overs like ace jack or something like that. You know, he's he might be you know he he could be doing some things like that with some bluff with some weaker hands, weaker parts of his range. But uh, but yeah, I think his bet makes total sense. So I mean, if I'm you there, I think I just check shove. Yeah, well, that's just, what I did. Yep, yep. I yeah. think we just got to get it in. Yeah, I mean, you know, not to tell a bad beat story, but he has king queen. Oh man! Yeah, I end up losing the pot, but not the tournament on that hand. It was just a kind of a sick hand. But I thought the interesting parts were whether to flat pre-flop. I thought it would be interesting to discuss, and uh, definitely the dark check factor there which i thought was kind of yeah. interesting because i, I like the dark check deep. there yeah. i think it's great because i'll tell you what like this is maybe you know uh showing my ass a little here for if i if i play any of the listeners live but basically if you dark check in a heads up pot against me and i'm in position you can almost guarantee i'm betting the flop yeah and i think most of us do you know it's such a a weak thing mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. lot of times they'll do it with like a small pair they want to check dark and hope they hit their set so they can check raise or, you know. Whatever. Yeah, or, or you see, like, I know you've probably played against guys like this, too. Uh, usually they're wearing sunglasses and they just check dark every opportunity that they get. They, love they just it. can't wait to say, check dark. Yeah, they love they it. They can't like, wait. It's like for the love of the game. They just, like, <laughs> yeah. love to be that cool guy. Yeah, yeah. I've never been a sunglasses guy, but I've noticed in recent years that it used to be if you got to a table where everyone had on sunglasses, you were at a tough table. And now it seems like things have definitely shifted to now the the most tables that have a lot of sunglasses are really good tables. Yeah. Because the players are scared or they they think, you know, they saw it on TV 15 years ago that everybody used to wear sunglasses. Yeah. I feel like and- sunglasses have become passe a bit. And I think, well, I think with a lot of poker players nowadays, like especially the younger generation, um, I think there's a little bit like a, like a little bit of ego. Like I'm going to let my strategy do the talking. I don't care about live reads. I want you to, I want, you know, I'm going to let my strategy do what it does and, and, uh, look at me all you want, but you know, I just think I'm better than you. So, so I don't, I don't need that. And I, you know, I've never worn sunglasses. It's more for me that I just think I look ridiculous wearing them. So uh, less about the poker and more just about I look like a freaking moron wearing them. But uh. I can't be that guy wearing sunglasses indoors. <laughs> right, the well, Secret Service. You know, I had an eye issue a couple World Series back, and um, where I had a real sensitivity to light for like a couple of weeks. I had antibiotics for it or whatever, and it was like going through the thing, but it was like right, it came on right before I left for Vegas, right? Oh, don't worry, weed's legal now. It's okay. So. <laughs> So, uh, so I was wearing sunglasses because the light, just like the light really hurt my eyes, 
but I like couldn't, I was in a really terrible spot because I needed to wear sunglasses medically, but I couldn't see my cards. And you look like a massive douche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look like a douche. <laughs> and I'm looking at my hand and I'm like, I literally can't, they look blank. Like I literally cannot see what I have, you know? Oh, wow. How, how'd you do that summer? <laughs> <laughs> I won four bracelets. Right, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Seeing your cards is totally overrated, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just went with it, man. I just played blind all summer. <laughs> yeah, a net 16. I didn't even look at my cards. I won yeah. anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah, well, um, yeah, okay. So that gives. Uh, hopefully that gives some people some things to mull over. Uh, hopefully if you ever have a problem that isn't cataracts and, uh, you, you need to go to Vegas for the World Series of Poker, uh, you find some sunglasses that'll do the trick but aren't too dark. You know? <laughs> I think being a little too dark could be a problem, so. Yep. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. All right. Any other pearls of wisdom before we call it a day? I don't think so. Nope. I, uh, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed being here again. I always like working with you. Yeah, me too. I'm very happy that you're willing and able to do it uh, with me so often, and uh, we get a good response on the episodes that we do together, which reminds me, guys, if you're listening and you enjoy the podcast, uh, if you want to do us a favor and just uh, go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, you might think that that's not going to really change anything, but it actually could really help us climb the ranks of poker podcasts um, on the iTunes rankings so that when people search for poker on there, they might find us a little easier, which would be a huge uh, favor for all of us and a great way for you to say thank you for all of the free content that we are giving you every week. And also, please do uh, consider joining TPE if you haven't yet. We have the greatest coaches. We have Jason Smith. We have Andrew Brokus. We have Corey Whalen and on and on and on. Uh, so many unbelievable coaches on the site. And uh, the price is very reasonable. So just log in to tournamentpokeredge.com and sign up today. So for Jason Snost and Lost, my favorite ACR Stormer manager of all time. <laughs> and for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. Fuck up,
Love nobody. Everybody, everybody. 